Lord, we do pray for Connie as well and desire that you would, in fact, go before her in not only protecting physically but spiritually and in every way that she would be a light at wherever she goes and would use her in a mighty way and accomplish more than simply the goals that she envisions, but even beyond that. And this morning, as we gather to understand what you have communicated, we pray for clarity of thought, clarity of mind, pray that any distraction or anything that might hinder us from clearly seeing you and what you communicated, we be able to put that away and behind us. So we commit our time to you, anticipating what you have for us in your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Maddie, there's Maddie. Some of you know Maddie. She went to Israel with us, so she's another Chaper student, graded many of her papers, so she apparently she came today to give me a grade, I assume. This morning, we're going to take a little short look at the book of Romans, and then I'm going to give you, well, I'm going to look at one concept that we encounter in the book, this concept of baptism. Now, most of you know that I've taken several trips, primarily teaching courses, Ukraine, Guatemala. Some of you may not even know that I did a lot of stuff in Mexico as well. In fact, Brazil as well. And since I don't speak barely English even, I usually need a translator. One thing I've noticed in translating, and I've noticed it both in Spanish and Portuguese and Russian, every once in a while, particularly when I'm doing something in creation science, I'll hear the same word repeated because it's if there's not an equivalent in that language. So the more technical the term is, and this is true of medical terms as well, scientific terms, oftentimes there's not an equivalent in Russian or Spanish or Portuguese or whatever other language. So basically, it's a repeat of the English word. We call that a what? Transliteration. We call that simply a transliteration. So we take in this case, an English word, and by just shifting the accent or putting an ending on it or something, we make it into that other language, but it's essentially the English word. That's what's called a transliteration. And it kind of sticks out because I I recognize it and I hear it. Now, this is also true of theological terms as well. Sometimes there's not an equivalent in Russian or Spanish or whatever. And that was the situation in terms of the word baptism. I think I mentioned a little bit of that last week. So today I want to kind of clarify some things. And any time that you transliterate, because there's not an equivalent, there's always a little bit of vagary, is that the right word, or vagueness. Sometimes it obscures meaning, and that's especially true of the word baptism. And as a result, there's always been some confusion over the meaning of that word because it's a transliteration. It's not a translation. Translation is finding a word in one language 
and then transferring it to an equivalent word in the language that is being translated. That doesn't happen in transliteration. It's just the word that's taken from one language, imported, with very little change in the language that is being translated. So that's what we have. So we're going to look at the concept of baptism, since it occurs a couple of times in verse 3, in order to understand the concept. Because in general, when we think of baptism, the first thing you think of is you're in a church or somewhere, and you're dunking or around a river or the Jordan River or whatever, and you get wet. So let's try to stay dry today. Because there's other ideas associated with the word from not only the original, but even in terms of uh, history and, and background. So we'll get into that. So we are in the book of Romans, and I'm just going to touch on verse 3 again, and then we'll, as you can notice on the outline, I've got an outline within an outline, as I often do. The main topic is going to be this doctrine of baptism. So we're talking about God's provision of his righteousness. Man stands condemned before a holy God. God has provided a means by which we can access righteousness. Chapters 3, 21 through the end of chapter 5. We're in the section called sanctification. How do we live out this righteousness that we have been declared? Justification is we have been declared righteous. So how do we live it out? That's chapters 6 through 8. And we saw that Paul raises the issue, how do we live now? Do we continue in the old way of living? That's verses 1 and 2. And we started looking at verses 3 through 4. The key to it is being united to Christ. You could even insert there, baptized into Christ, but I don't use that because that fuzzies our thinking and clouds the whole issue. Because the essence of it is this uniting idea, and that's what I'm going to try and develop as we look at this concept. So that's verse 3 and 4 of chapter 6. So he answers his own question. He raises a hypothetical. The essence of the question is now that we have been justified, how do we now live this out in everyday life? We are dead to sin. This is the heart of the answer. Now he's going to carry that whole idea all the way through even into chapter 8. He's going to repeat the concept and the phrase throughout it. And in verse 3, he gives the major principle in terms of living the Christian life. It's in union or in Christ. Here's where we get the concept of being in Christ. A common phrase that occurs about 200 times in the New Testament. Terry. So our new nature is dead to sin, but our old nature is not. Yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah, we'll get, you're jumping three weeks ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk some more about that, exactly. So this is kind of where we're at, or do you not know, and I stress the importance of understanding, because the way we live comes right out of our thinking. And I gave you lots of examples of how that works out in a practical way. So our thinking is very important, and now... Actually, throughout this passage, even beginning in uh, verse 2, he just lays out the facts. 
There's no exhortation. In other words, no list of do's and don'ts. No commands until you get to verse 11. So he's laying out the doctrine, if you will, or the facts that we have to have ingrained. And then from that, that will enable us with the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to live out these principles. So do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, there it is, baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized again into his death. Okay? And like I said, most Christians, when they read this, in fact, most commentators as well, you read their commentary, their mind immediately jumps to dunking in a tank or in a baptismal pool or whatever and miss the whole point of what Paul is actually getting at here. So we have to go back and take a look at what does that word mean. And historically, going back to how I introduced what we're doing here, when they were translating into English during the time of King James, King James instilled fear in the church leaders, and because of the politics and because of the different views, even at the time in 1611, actually before that, because that's when the King James was actually published, the King James Version, because of not only this underlying controversy concerning baptism, but because of the wrath of King James. <laughs> now, I use that because when you say King James, that's all people think of today, right? And actually, that's a photograph of King James when he played for Cleveland, but we need to update it because he's now king of Los Angeles. Anyway, just wanted to catch your attention here. Yep, this is not the King James. The King James that I'm talking about, 1611, during the writing or the translation of the King James Version. Now, because of that controversy, they... Basically, I think Bill said they punted and they did not translate the word because there were some that saw the visible expression of it or the the symbol that represented the inward reality. There were some that uh, immersed and sprinkling was already prevalent as well amongst many. So rather than trying to translate it, what they did, is they just transliterated it. And I showed you last time, uh, this is kind of where we picked up from last time, the different terms, and if you notice them, the Greek verb, baptizo, there it is in parentheses, not much different from our English word baptism. We just Englishized it, if you will, but it's the identical word. It's not translated. And if you look up the usages of it and you study the background and the history to it, you find out that it means to dip something. And it has nothing really to do with anything spiritual in the everyday world. To dip something or to wash something or to immerse something. And I'm going to give you some examples here. Right now, I just want you to see where the word comes from. Now, the noun form, baptism, notice... Just like our word, baptism, except in Greek, baptisma, very little change. So it's not a word that is translated, it's a word that is transliterated. There's also baptismas, 
So baptismas, a dipping or a washing or washings. And then when it describes someone that does the action, what is it in English? You could say baptizer, very good. Baptist. But most often it is baptist in in association with John. John is the baptizer, you could even say. But again, notice baptizo, baptisma, baptismas, baptistes. All of these are just transliterations of the word. So we want to go back and see what the real meaning is. Otherwise, we won't understand what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6. If you mix it up with water baptism, then you've missed the whole point. Okay? So, let's use a couple of examples. In everyday life, and this was common in the first century, if you had a garment, and in this case a white garment, or probably not so white as this one, and if in fact you immersed it in dye, you would describe that action as baptizing that shirt. Got it? That word would be used. I baptized my shirt, and now that it's baptized, it has a totally new identity. Got it? That's the meaning of the word. It was used in that context, in that way. Now, another illustration to kind of show that it could be used in a in another way as well, in the culture. This is before it acquired theological meaning. And remember, every theological word, what? comes right out of a word that is used in the culture. So if you understand how it is used in the culture, it helps you understand how it can be used theologically. And that's true of every theological word, but particularly the one we're looking at. So this idea of a new identity. So if somebody says, you're wearing a new shirt today, you say, no, it's just a new identity because I baptized it. Another illustration, you've got a young kid here, Put yourself back, even in classical time, before the New Testament was written, during the time of the philosophers in Greek history. If you had a situation where a young man like this, kind of a weakling, if you will, he goes through the training, he goes through all of the rigors of boot camp, you might say, to be trained as a warrior, And at the end of that training, in order to initiate the ones that went through the training, they would dip their swords in blood. That dipping was called what? They were baptizing, not the sword, but it was more of a symbol of initiating this individual into a new lifestyle or a new identity, you could say. Or you might even say, The dipping in the blood or the baptizing in the blood gave him not only a new identity, but now a new mission. He's initiated into the military now, and rather than being viewed as this 89-pound weakling, now he has the identity of he's part of a force that is going to conquer and go into battle and shed blood. So the baptizing is this initiation or this idea of a new identity. So, let's take a look. That's the background. That's kind of what was going on in the culture in terms of the usage of that word. In fact, it was used commonly 
For example, if a ship had sank to the bottom of the sea, that ship could be described as being baptized. It was totally immersed. Now, in that case, it didn't come back up, but that same word would be used in that context. Anything that was immersed, anything that was dipped, anything that was submerged, as in a ship, that word would be associated with that idea. Or something that is overwhelmed by something else, that word could be used. So that's the concept of the word. So in the New Testament, I see this word used in three major ways. And I use the background slide there. Do you remember that, Maddie? You may even be in there. I'm not sure. But that's the Jordan River, kind of as my background slide here. In fact, on the other side of the river is the nation of Jordan. Usually, you should see some soldiers on the other side. I don't know if they were sleeping or whatever. But anyway, on the Israeli side, this is on the west side of the bank, they've created this place where you can have baptisms. This is about as close as the estimate is made in terms of where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. It doesn't look like a very big river. Not very big right there. Yeah. And I think in ancient times it probably had more more water. Right. Yep. It does have a lot more water when you're not pulling so much out for irrigation of mm-hmm. That's poor. That's probably the main reason exactly. So first of all, let's look at it in its more visible or symbolic usage, the one that is most common amongst us. And I categorize this, and there are several that fit in this category, ritual water baptism. In other words, a ritual that is to convey a truth behind it. All right? So all of these convey ideas behind a deeper spiritual truth, ritual water baptisms. Also part of the background, you might even say, in terms of this ritual, when we think of Christian baptism, are what are called Jewish washings. Jewish washings. And let's look these up. Somebody look up Mark 7. Somebody look up Luke 11. Who's got first one? Connie's got Mark. Somebody got Luke 11. Jeremy. How about Exodus from the Old Testament, where we have the Greek translation uses baptizo there, okay? So I'm going to give you kind of the Old Testament word there. I don't have the Hebrew there, but the Old Testament translates it baptized. Because it was a common word that uh, had this idea of giving a new identity, immersing, dipping, that sort of thing. Exodus 19.10. So first of all, Mark 7, 3 through 4. Can you read it there? You got enough light? For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. Now that washing, that's not baptismal, that's a different word, but notice the context. In other words, it's a synonym in the same context, and baptism is used in the next part there. Keep reading. Holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Unless they wash. The word baptizo is there. Keep reading. And there are many other things which they have received and told, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. So they immersed, they washed. The idea of cleansing, the idea of washing, that's part of the whole idea here. 
Dipping in water in this case. Not dipping in blood, but dipping in water in order to cleanse. Washings. So a washing is a good translation there. Notice it doesn't use the word baptism. It uses the word washing. And that that is a translation there. Rather than a transliteration. And that's one of the reasons I use that. Luke 11.38 When the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed. Okay. The translation there is ceremonially, including that word, washed, referring to Jesus, because they were used to doing that. This was a Jewish washing. Got that? Who's got Exodus 19.10? The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And by the way, there's the word... Sanctify them, which means what? We've looked in detail of that. Set them apart, but don't forget for a particular purpose. For God's use in this case, yeah. And let them wash their garments. Let them wash their garments. So part of the setting apart concept is this idea of cleansing. And in this case, it's a, it became a tradition and a ceremony, a ceremonial washing that was carried through in other places in Judaism. So there's this Jewish concept where the word is used, the word baptize, and accurately translated, it's translated washing. So it also includes purification, this idea of cleansing, this idea of set apart for a purpose with an initiation of cleansing. And there are evidence all over Israel. We've seen some of them when we went. These, what you could call a baptismal pool, or a in this context, this would be a Jewish mikvah, or mikvahim, I guess, if you have more than one, in Jerusalem. Oh, she's our Hebrew scholar. So we have a Greek scholar and Hebrew scholar today. Better be Watch careful. Watch my words. In Qumran, I don't remember us seeing either one of these, but there are two. There's a larger one on the left there, stairway. You don't actually see the bottom of it. And a smaller one up to the right there. These are ceremonial places of washing for the concept of purification. So the word carried the idea of not only a dipping like a sword in blood, not only like a ship being submerged and overwhelmed in a sea, and not only in immersing something in water, but also this idea of purification. What I'm doing here is kind of developing how this word was used so that we have a better idea of what it means in theological contexts. So here we have Mikvotim, is that how you would pronounce it? Okay, these are, first of all, Jewish washings. So all of those were from uh, Jewish time periods in, in Israel. And by the way, in Qumran, it's believed that there were Essenes there that practiced baptisms. Can we use that word now? In this washing and purification, ceremonial purification sense. Also, we have John the Baptist and his baptisms... In fact, Baptist is another transliteration of that word. And somebody get Mark 1, 4. He's got it. And Matthew 3, 6 and 7. 
Got it? You got it? Which one you have? The Mark one? Oh, she's got the Matthew one. Who wants to do the Mark one? Connie again? We're going to have all our readers today. And for your notes and for time, we won't look up the Acts 13.24, but you can include that one in your notes. And there's others, by the way, but these are the most prominent ones. First of all, Mark 1.4. Connie, why don't you read that one? John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Okay, so John, the word is used two times there, came baptizing in the wilderness. In other contexts, it refers to the Jordan. So, possibly in the sight of the photograph I gave you. And read it again, baptizing in what? Baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Okay, a baptism of repentance. In other words, a turning from sin. So it gives us a hint in terms of the purpose of John's baptism. And Matthew gives us a, a more expanded vision of it. Can I start at five? Yeah, you can start. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, John the Baptist. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God. Okay. He excluded some. And notice also it talks about the Jordan. And in that context, it probably tells us about immersion in water. But this is a physical, visible expression of the idea. And it is for repentance of sin. It has that purifying idea. You see that? So baptism was used in the same, he was used in the sense the same way. Washing the very use of it in the sense of a symbol of regeneration. Yeah, we're adding theological elements to it. Yeah. Now, this baptism of John, the purpose of it, is for Israel in the context of all of these passages. It's for Israel's repentance, and it's for preparation for the coming of Messiah. That's why it quotes the Old Testament in these contexts, and... Right at the same context, John announces the coming of the kingdom. So it's preparation for Messiah who will establish a kingdom. His baptism is more Jewish than it is Christian, Terry. So it's more Jewish in terms of a purification, if you will, in order to prepare for the coming of Messiah. Much like what Moses instructed in Exodus to purify the people in preparation for receiving the law. Cunning. Um, my little note here says, uh, the Jews practiced self-immersion as a form of baptism, but John immersed others as a witness to their repentance. Christian baptism is performed in the name of the Trinity as a witness to one's faith in Christ. Some who followed John and who later believed in Christ were rebaptized. Yep. That's why it's just preparatory. And we're going to look at a passage. I may not finish this today. In fact, I might not get to that part of it. But in Acts chapter 19, we see a rebaptism of those that had been baptized by John. So what's going on there? We'll talk about that. We'll get that far. So ritual baptism includes Jewish washings, translated that way. 
the baptisms of John the Baptist, and then we have the baptism of Jesus, which you're more familiar with. Now, did Jesus have to be baptized? In fact, John protests and says, no, I can't baptize. You have no need to be baptized. That's Matthew 3, 11 through 16. You still have Matthew there? Who's got it? Okay, read that one. I baptize, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He's referring to Messiah there. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Two things there. Two baptisms. One of them I'm going to come back to. Actually, both of them I'm going to come back to. But the first one, here we have a baptism with the Holy Spirit. This is the, one of the first mentions of it, first promise of it. When Messiah comes, he's going to baptize or he's going to immerse, not in water necessarily. This is probably a spiritual baptism here already. Probably not a water baptism in this context. Okay? But... Jesus was, in fact, baptized in water, so that's why I categorize it here, but it's predicting a different baptism, and the baptism with fire and the water there. We'll talk about that some more. So Jesus' baptism, it's unique because he's sinless. He had no need for baptism, sinless. But Jesus says, no, it must be done in order to fulfill some purposes. And the purpose is, one of them is Jesus is identifying himself with sinners. Because he will become sin on behalf of sinners. He's also identifying himself with John. John is bringing people to repentance in order to prepare them for Messiah. He's identifying himself with John. So he's connecting himself, you might say, or uniting himself and identifying himself with John. And that's the main reason Jesus is baptized, not because he had a need. So the baptism of Jesus is a unique baptism, one that Jesus did not need to fulfill. And then we have believers' baptism that you're more familiar with because you see it. And it's basically a picture of an inward reality. What I want to impress upon you here, and we won't look these passages up, but you're familiar with them. The Great Commission passage where it instructs us to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son. In other words, baptizing people. Now, there, it probably has both connotations. In other words, you have to have the first before you have the visible water baptism aspect. And then the Acts 2.38 and 41 is clearly a water baptism after Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 are saved. Thousands, you could say. And they are baptized. And we had one of these ourselves, Bill the Baptistes. And we had immersion in the Jordan River when we were in Israel. And there were six others, I believe, right, Bill? Was it cold? No. Oh, no, it was midsummer. It was refreshing. So, if this is happening in Jerusalem, and, Jesus, and Peter is saying, repent and be baptized every one of you, 
would they then have been baptized in Mikvah? Yeah, probably that one that I showed. It's a long trek to the river. Yeah, no, it would it would have been in Mikvah puddles. Puddles. No, those baptismal. They they were common. They're all over Israel. In fact, they might have even been the Pool of Siloam. They might have baptized there too. The Pool of Siloam is just right down the hill. What's the other one up on the other end of Temple Mount, north of Temple Mount? Bethesda. Bethesda, the pools of Bethesda. Lots of water around there. Because there was a need for ceremonial cleansing. So water was no problem. In fact, on a feast day, there would be 100,000 people on Temple Mount. And before they went on Temple Mount, they would have gone through ceremonial cleansing. 100,000 people. So water's not an issue there. Again, we won't look these up. If you want to just write them down. Just examples of water baptism were the word baptism. Which water was Jesus baptized in? That Jordan River? I'll show it again. Yeah, probably at that spot. That's the passage on Pentecost. And if you look these up, notice one thing. Notice that almost... Well, not simultaneous, but very shortly after belief, you have water baptism in every one of these. On the day of Pentecost, same time. Right after after 3,000, they were baptized. We have Simon in Acts 8, which is an interesting passage. I don't want to get sidetracked with it. But 8, 12 through 16, he believed. And even, it says, even he was baptized immediately. There were others as well. The Ethiopian eunuch, remember, he's probably on his way back to Ethiopia and encounters Philip, and he wants to know, he's reading Isaiah and wants to understand the meaning of Isaiah 53. So Philip explains it. He trusts in Jesus Christ. And even the Ethiopian eunuch said, hey, there's water right there. Can I be baptized to symbolize what happened to me inside? So it's immediate. Paul himself, Acts chapter 19, that's the passage of his conversion, and in verse 18, he's baptized right after believing. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and by the way, I'm going to come back to this passage, maybe not today, but we'll come back to Acts 10, 47 and 48. And who's asking last week, of, oh, uh, Juliet was asking about... Where did infant baptism come? Well, it came historically, but the biblical basis for it that is used, probably not correctly, for infant baptism, it speaks of Cornelius when he believed. Now notice his household believed as well. He and his household were baptized immediately. He believes in Acts chapter 10, what is it, verse 45, I believe, and then 47 and 48, he's baptized, he and his household. Lydia at Philippi, Acts 16, 16, she believes she's baptized. And by the way, all of these more than likely are by immersion. The jailer, also at Philippi, also believes, Acts 16, 33, and after he believes, he's baptized. And remember, this is after an earthquake, and there were some injuries involved, so that didn't hinder them. Probably not a hip replacement, but (laughs) some injuries there. And there's some others, there's some mentioned. These are in Acts. Some Corinthians are baptized. They don't mention it. And at Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, passage will come back in. Yeah, there's the Jordan, George. That's probably the reason they've set this place up is to believe that 
somewhere close by, somewhere in that proximity, Jesus was baptized. That's the Jordan River. On the other side is the nation of Jordan. And on the side that all the people are. So, so out of curiosity, how far, I mean, is the border directly on the river? Right down the middle. Or is it? Is there a floodplain that the border is kind of down the middle of this larger? No, floodplain? it's probably right down the middle here. That's why they have this, because they don't want you to go beyond that. They don't have people coming across the border. They don't dare in Israel. Barely. When we, Gary and I went, we were on the Jordan side with Matthew, and he's correct. They are the soldiers right there with guns. They're going to definitely discourage you from walking in the water, because like you said, it's like, what, 20 paces or, you know, yep. short, short swimming, whatever, but they guard that other side. Yep. Okay, that's ritual water baptism. There's also, and now we're moving more spiritual, more non-visible, not so symbolic. Water baptism symbolizes an inward reality. So that's why I describe it as real baptism. This is real identification baptism. Not that water baptism is not real, but what I'm saying is the spiritual aspect is just as real. Something happens. You can't see it. It's invisible. So I call it real identification baptisms. And these don't involve water. And there are four here. I didn't number them on your outline sheet here. But you could say, now this one is a little uh, not as clear, I guess, is the word. And if we had more time, we could look up First Peter 3. There's some other issues in there that make that a little bit complicated passage, probably referring to Genesis 6, a lot of issues in there. First Peter 3, verse 20 through 21, and actually it uses the word baptism in it, and it also makes an interesting statement, baptism saves you. This is where some go off theologically because they don't understand the meaning of the word and get this idea that unless you are baptized, you do not have salvation because that's what Peter says. Baptism saves you. But you need to look at it in its context. What he's doing is he's drawing an analogy of Noah and those that got saved. And by the way, the ones on the ark didn't get wet. It was the ones that were not baptized that got wet and drowned in the flood, the waters of the flood. And he says, corresponding to this, or there's an analogy that I'm drawing, just as those on the ark did not receive the judgment of water destruction. They were saved. The analogy he's drawing here is now baptism is the means by which God saves you. I think in that context he's using it like Paul is using it. But there's an association. In other words, he's saying there's an association with those that are associated with Noah. Similarly, there's an association or an identification in terms of this idea in our time of baptism. And then Moses is a little clearer in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2, how much water is there. What's the context of that? you remember that one? That's in a place where there's very little water in the wilderness. <laughs> in the wilderness, Paul is using another kind of picture here. 
But in verse 2, he speaks of the children of Israel being baptized, who? Into who? Moses. Into Moses. No water. Into Moses in the cloud. You got there? Read it. Read verse 1 and 2. You got it. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized. Now that's the exodus. And again, who are the ones that stay dry? The Israelites who walked through on dry land, and it was the Egyptians that got wet. And yet it's the children of Israel that were baptized. Got it? Keep reading. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, etc. The idea of they are identified or united with Moses. No water identified with, united with, you might say, with Moses, went through the same experience as Moses. They were together. They were one. They were identified with one another. So this idea of identification. When Jesus, we read this passage, Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist announces that Jesus will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and what? With fire. There's going to be an identification. That's not water. It's pretty dry. It's the opposite of wet. Fire. He expands it in verse 12 and tells us that this is a judgment. There's going to be a judgment that comes with Jesus Christ. An identification of judgment. So there's going to be an identification in terms of the Holy Spirit or a union in terms of the Holy Spirit and a union in terms of judgment as well. Then there's a fourth one, Jesus, and this one we probably ought to read, who wants to look up Mark 10. Jeremy, you got it? And Luke 12, 50, who wants to do that one? You got it? Which one do you have, Terry? Luke 12, 50. Okay. You got it, Jeremy? Yes. Mark, Mark, Mark 10, 38 and 39. Read it loud. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? A baptism that Jesus will be baptized with. And now he describes that baptism. They said to him, we are able. Oh, yeah, 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 we can do it. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptisms with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those Okay, Ellen. Which... I've got the Amplified, and it already going to give some extra. And it says that this baptism is a baptism of suffering. Yes. And what he's alluding to, ultimately, in that context, the cup that he's going to drink is crucifixion, and it's going to involve a immersion, you might even say, into death and suffering. And the disciples are going to experience the same thing. They're going to experience martyrdom as well. And they're certainly going to suffer for their, their faith. So they will experience that same one. And in a spiritual sense, this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 6. Luke 12, 50. You got it, Terry? Jesus is talking. I know because it's the red letter. Yep. <laughs> but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. He's anticipating the crucifixion. He calls it a baptism. Is there any water on the cross? 
No water there. So he's not, it has nothing to do with water. This is, he's identifying or uniting with death. He's entering into it. He's going to be overwhelmed by death. That's the idea of baptism. Now, real spirit baptism, and we're about to run out of time here. I think I'll save a little problem that we have here. There's a charismatic view that I want to kind of explain. It's going to take a little bit longer on that. So let's skip over that one and kind of conclude by defining what we mean by spirit baptism. And we'll come back and I'll re-emphasize this next week. It's predicted by John the Baptist. We read that passage. There's one that's coming that will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's the Matthew 3.11 passage. So it's predicted very early. It's talking about spirit baptism in that context, even though the context also deals with fire baptism. When it refers to Jesus, he's talking about a spiritual baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit. So it's predicted. Jesus is the one that is the baptizer. That's that same passage. He is the one that is going to baptize us or baptize people. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit, it's by the Holy Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit. So both Christ and the Spirit are involved in this baptism. This is a spiritual baptism. It's a union, a uniting. This is what we're talking about in Romans 6, 3 and 4. No water there. Stay dry in Romans. Don't need to wear a raincoat and study Romans 6 at least. So it's talking about a union, or you might even, you could say, an identification with Christ. And Romans 6 is where we have the essence of the concept of being in Christ. We'll talk some more about that. A little phrase that occurs about over 200 times, very often in the book of Ephesians. We have many, many, many blessings in Christ, because we are united with him, not just identified by name, but a deep identification such that he is in us and we are in him, as he promised. Okay, so it's a union with Christ. That's the essence of what we're looking at in Romans 6, 3 through 4. It's also, first, we'll come back to this as well, First Corinthians twelve thirteen. It's a uniting, it's a spiritual uniting of believers, true believers, or the body of Christ is the phrase that Paul uses. So you and I have a unity by this spiritual, invisible baptism. The timing, I believe, is at the moment of justification. And that's why it's important to go through the charismatic view, because they have a subsequent experience or a second blessing idea that we need to talk about. We'll do that next time. That's number six there. And it is an experience. It is real. It is something that you can't see, you can't experience, but it is real. And that's what he's talking about. Knowing, or do you not know this, he says in verse three. In other words, you know it to be true, even though you can't feel it or you don't see it. And the water baptism is just an expression of that. In other words, I am buried in water to picture being united with Christ. I'm 
buried underwater, and then I'm raised up out of the water to picture the resurrection that we are also baptized in. So it's a picture of what Romans 6 is describing as a reality. So it's an, an experience that is immediate, and it's invisible, but it is real. And we can know it. And he calls upon us in verse 11 to reckon it or believe it to be true. And that, by the way, is the key to living the Christian life. Just to illustrate it, here's a young boy that just trusted in Jesus Christ. He has received immediately upon belief spirit baptism. And as a result of spirit baptism, he's united with Christ. That's what it means. He's also identified with Christ. He's immersed in Christ. He in Christ, Christ in us. This is conversion. This is at justification. He is purified by Christ. And in reality, even though it's invisible, he has inward mightiness, you might say, or power. Part of what we see in the Romans 6 passage. And it includes the justification. It includes purification. Okay? All of the ideas. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. And as a result, we are now in Christ. Now, this is only those that have, in fact, trusted in Christ. Doesn't pertain to the unbeliever. We are now in Christ and have all the blessings of being in Christ. Does that clarify baptism? Who wants to close for us? Father, thank you for uh, this time to look at what is true. Regardless of how we came here today, what has gone on, what will go on the rest of the day, for those of us who have trusted in you, who have proclaimed the fact that, yes, we are now under the sovereignty of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, these things are true. So I pray, Father, that... Uh, these, these things will sink into our hearts and that we will live day by day, moment by moment in the reality of what is true so that a very dark and desperate world who has no clue of who they are or what they are or what their purpose is or anything might see the inestimable value of your son in us. We might live worthy of what you have done to us. In Jesus' name, Amen.